Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this last hour of the evening. Lord, I know that uh, my brothers and sisters are likely tired after a week full of work and school and family, Lord God. But I pray you would help them to focus and to stay attentive. Lord, we, we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and help us to understand the text and to believe the text and to apply the text so that we may exalt you and reflect you with greater clarity in our lives as we seek to um, counsel ourselves by your word, but also those in our church. And Lord, those even those outside of our church that we're, we're calling to love you and trust you and follow you. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, my name is Brent Osterberg. I'm one of the pastors at Living Hope Bible Church in Mansfield, Texas. If you need need a, a church in Mansfield, or if you know somebody that's in the Mansfield area, we would love to have them come and visit our church, lhbcmansfield.com, and so send them our way. Um, but it's my pleasure to continuously be a part of this uh, ministry at Grace Bible Church, the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. Every year we get to do this every fall, and so I'm glad you're here. I love being a part of this and uh, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And so uh, let me start out by by uh, letting you know something about myself, and that is that I'm terrible at diagnosing physical problems. I'm not a doctor, uh, a medical doctor by any means. Uh, My son, whenever he was, I think, nine or ten, fell off of a trampoline, and um, he said that his arm hurt, and I looked at it, and I kind of felt it, and, and said, okay, I think, you know, it's not swollen, so you're probably okay. You know, so he went home and we went to sleep and he woke up the next day and, and sure enough, he couldn't move his arm and it was starting to get swollen. And sure enough, we took him to the hospital finally after like, I don't know how long. And both of the bones in his arm were broken clean through. So uh, I'm not the guy to listen to when it comes to diagnosing physical problems. On the other end of the spectrum, my daughter, when she was probably like, uh, I don't know, 13 months old, um, she was crying a lot because every time we tried to move her arm, um, it was causing her pain. And we didn't know why, and I overreacted and said, we've got to go to the emergency room. And come to find out, a friend of mine said, oh, that's just nursemaid's elbow. All you have to do is take her arm, go like this, and it's back into place. And so $1,100 later, I found that out. So I'm bad at diagnosing physical problems. But the importance of diagnosing um, spiritual problems is an important feature as well. Because if you don't bring the proper diagnosis to a spiritual problem, then you can't apply the proper remedy, right? So we're going to be talking about diagnosing the heart here tonight. So uh, one of the things that we do, uh, because we see problems in our lives, uh, instead of properly diagnosing them, we end up blame shifting, don't we? Blame shifting is an age-old problem. It's an ancient problem. And so if you look at Genesis chapter 3, you remember our friend, our fellow man, Adam, said, it was the woman that you gave me, Lord. The woman that you gave me. It's like this double blame shift. And ever since he did that, we all do that now. We blame shift. We've got a problem. We misdiagnose. We blame it on other things or other people. What are some ways that we blame shift today? Potential excuses, our trials, 
I've got this spiritual problem. I've got this sin problem, but I'm going to blame it on my circumstances. I'm walking through hardship. My life is difficult. There's pressure. That's the problem, not my heart. Or it's my upbringing. It's the way that I was raised. It's the environment I was raised in, the way that my parents did or did not raise me. That's the problem. So I point the finger and blame my upbringing, or it's my genetics, it's, it's on the inside, it's molecular, it's my DNA, and that's the problem. Or, this is very common today, that's the way God made me. And so we point to God, kind of like Adam did, and we blame him for our spiritual problems. Or in our hectic world, busyness. I'm so busy all the time. If my life would just slow down, I wouldn't have this problem. It's the circumstance. It's the job. It's the, it's the, the dropping the kids off at soccer and then having all these responsibilities. That's the problem. Or it's my lack of sleep. Right? I didn't get enough sleep. And so, yeah, I wouldn't be making these choices if it weren't for that. Or I don't have any support at home. I don't get any support from my spouse. That's the issue. That's the problem. Or Satan. Satan is the problem. He is the one who's making me do these things. But these are occasions. These are occasions for sin. They're provocations towards sin. But they are not the source of the problem. Dan Kirk is my mentor, pastoral ministry, and he often used this illustration of a bottle. And he said, listen... Um, if I take this cap off a bottle, you've got water inside it. What's on the inside is going to come out if I shake the bottle, right? And that's, that's obvious. It's physics, right? I think that's the science that we're talking about. You shake it and what's on the inside comes out. But the shaking does nothing to change what's on the inside, Right? If there were dirty motor oil in my water bottle, then shaking it would still take what's on the inside and bring it outside of the bottle. So we can have occasions for our sin, things that shake us in life, circumstances, all of these things we just listed. Those are occasions for our sin, but they are not the problem at its root. The heart is the problem. The heart of the problem is the heart. Let's look at a couple of texts. Luke 6, 43 through 45. You can turn there in your Bibles if you've got them there. I'm going to read them out loud. But we see New Testament theology is very clear about our spiritual problem. When it comes to our bad choices, when it comes to our morality, when it comes to our sins, it's not our circumstances, it's not our DNA, it's not Satan, it's what's on the inside. It's our heart. Luke 6:43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. So 
Why is the fruit bad? Because the tree is bad. That's the answer. The fruit is bad because the tree itself is bad. Paul Tripp uses an illustration talking about this. He says that um, if you find that you have an apple tree in your backyard and you notice that the apples that are coming off of that tree are just gross. They're rotten. They're nasty. No one would ever want to put one of them in his mouth. What do you do about that? Well, said you don't go to the grocery store and find nice shiny apples and then take them home and staple them to the branches. That's not what you do to fix the problem. Because the root is the problem, right? You've got to apply attention to the root. So fruit is bad because the root is bad, because the tree itself is bad. What about Mark seven fourteen through 23? What defiles a person according to this text? This is what Jesus says, and I'll read the context here starting in verse 14. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared, All food's clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's not what goes into a person, it's what comes out, out of the heart. The heart is the problem. The heart of the problem is the heart. But what is the heart? Biblically speaking, right? What are we talking about? We're not talking about our, our physical organ in our chests. That's not what we're talking about. So what is the heart according to Scripture? I like this definition from Jeffrey Forey. He says, The heart is the moral and motivational control center of the person. The moral and motivational control center of the person. You could also say this, the heart is the seat of our thoughts, emotions, and will. So with that in mind, you can understand why we need to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, I actually uh, think that the NIV puts it uh, well here. It says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because the very direction of your lives come from your heart. Everything you do, everything you choose comes from your heart. So be careful what you're desiring. Be careful what you're thinking about. Be careful what you are lending your heart to, what you're looking at, what you're putting into it in terms of content. You've got to guard it because everything that you do actually flows out of your motivational and moral Control center, the heart. But listen, I thought I was supposed to follow my heart. I was taught that. I grew up learning that. 
I've seen countless movies that told me that very thing. They can't all be wrong. Of course they can't. That's the direction, uh, the faulty direction of our culture. Follow your heart. What does it tell you? No matter who else might be against you or telling you wise words, you've got to do you, right? But Jeremiah 17.9 is clear. The heart of man is naturally corrupt. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is the very word of God. We must allow God's word to shape what we think about what's on the inside. His word defines reality. The God who made reality, the God who made you, the God is in control of everything. The omniscient God, the all-powerful God, the God for whom everything exists, He has spoken. And He says, our hearts naturally are corrupt. And so when we're thinking about this, that would lead us next to think about the very concept of worship. What is worship and where does it come from? When we're talking about worship in particular, it's not if we're going to worship, but what or who we're going to worship. We all worship. As a person with a heart, right, with that control center, that motivational moral control center, we all worship. Whether you are believer or unbeliever, every single person that is made worships. So it's not if you're going to worship, but what or who you worship. That's what matters, and that's what's at the root of our problems as sinners, is that we're not worshiping who we should be worshiping, but someone or something else besides the living God who's made us. So, look with me at Romans chapter 1. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. We're going to see humanity's problem in terms of worship. Humanity's got a worship problem. You could say it like that. And this text of Scripture shows us that very clearly. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has showed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Did you catch that? Exchanged the glory of God for images. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they, listen, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The problem, the worship problem that we have 
In our sinfulness, we exchange objects of worship. We exchange God for idols. And anything other than God can be an idol, can be something that you worship, that you treasure, that you ascribe worth and honor to with your desires and with your life. So what are you worshiping in your sin? Who are you worshiping in your sin? If you're not worshiping God, then you're worshiping someone or something else. Now, as we think about a couple of texts, we need to see that the sinful nature within ensures that our worship is inherently self-centered. In Genesis 3, 4 through 6, we read this, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. At the core of this temptation is autonomy, being your own God, right? Being like God, being in charge, you calling the shots. And so, yes, our worship is inherently self-centered. And then if we look at Isaiah 53, verse 6, we read this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. To his own way. We're exalting ourselves. We want to be the one who is exalted. We want to be the one who is trusted, the one who is calling the shots. We want to be our own authority. We've turned aside everyone to his own way. And by the way, we can see that our worship is wicked, our misdirected worship is wicked because of a few different things. Why is our misdirected worship wicked? First of all, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7 tells us that God made us for his glory. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made you, made me for his glory. That's why we exist. And so, in our sin, when we turn to other things to worship those things, or worship other people, other experiences, you can see the depth of depravity in that because God's very intention, His purpose for making you and me, is that we would reflect Him, that we would honor Him, that we would treasure Him. So, our heart is wicked as it worships other things. And also we can see that in the fact that, I'm sorry, he gave us or made us in his image. At our church, um, we like to say it like this. We exist to show the world what God is like. He stamped you with his image. And that means your purpose for existence is that you, with your life, would show the world what he is like. But in our sin, in our false worship, in our idolatry, we're not doing that. We're rebelling against that design and that intent of our creation. So you can see the depravity, the wickedness of our misdirected worship from the heart. 
Because we read in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Also, James 1.17 tells us that every blessing we've been given comes from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. And so if we're worshiping other things, we have to remember this. Those things are only gifts. They're great gifts. They're horrible gods. The things that you worship, whether it is, it is the pleasure you can get from the things you're spending your money on, it's, whether it's control or freedom, right? Maybe it's uh, autonomy, authority. Maybe it is, is pleasure of, of comfort and ease and prosperity. Whatever you're worshiping. Those are gifts. They're good gifts. They're horrible gods. And so we have to remember that God is giving that gift. And if you're using that as if it were your God, how offensive is that? How wicked is that to our great God? Also, Psalm 16, 4 and 11. Turn with me there. I want to show you this in the text because it says that true joy is found in God, but I want you to look with me there. Let me show you what's going on here in this text. We worship something else. We, we think that true pleasure is found in it. If you're worshiping freedom, right, then you think that true joy, fullness of joy, is found in that freedom. But God says it's actually found in Him. Verse 4 of Psalm 16 says this. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's pretty clear. Anything that you treat as a God, little g, your sorrows are going to increase as a result of you pursuing that as if that thing or that experience were God. But the truth, the other side of things, is found in verse 11. David says, you make known to me the path of life. Speaking to God. In your presence... There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so whenever we choose to worship something else, we're saying, no, I don't believe that the pleasures forevermore are found in you, God. It's found somewhere else. We believe that lie. And again, how offensive is that to the one who has made us and in whom there is all pleasure? So you've heard me use the terminology idol. And that's maybe an archaic word to you. Maybe you don't talk like that or you haven't heard that um, word used outside of a TV show, right? American Idol, right? But the word idol has something important to tell us about what's going on in this moral, motivational control center called the heart. So what is an idol? An idol is anything you desire or trust ultimately. An idol is anything you desire or trust ultimately. And by the way, an idol does not have to be something we consider to be bad. It doesn't have to be something that is that you look at and you're like, yeah, that's straight up evil. I know, I don't I have to go near that thing. That's just, that's just wrong on all levels. Idols can be good things too. Idol can be something like work. Work's a good thing. There was work before the fall, wasn't there? Before the fall, he had them tending the garden. Work is a good thing, but yet it can be too important to us. It can become that little G God 
that thing that we're desiring ultimately or trusting ultimately. Something else that's good that can be an idol for us, leisure. It's good for us to rest. You should rest. You should do things that are enjoyable physically. Go go for a run. Take a nap. Enjoy some coffee, right? Go play disc golf if that's what you do. I know some of you guys play disc golf here. So if that's something you like to do, then do it. But that too can become a god. It can become an idol for you if you desire it too much. Sex can be an idol. Listen, here's another one too. Family, food, sleep, safety, even ministry can be an idol. Now, family being an idol is interesting, isn't it? You're like, okay, but what? You're, you're, you're telling me that family can be an idol, but I'm supposed to love my family. As a husband, I need to lead my family. I need to love my wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you're saying that um, I can treat family as an idol? Yes. You can treat family as too important. Listen to this from Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are you loving family members more than you're loving Jesus? If so, there's an idol in your heart. That family member has become your idol because you are loving that person more than Jesus who has that place of ultimate priority in your heart, or he should. Food, sleep, safety, these are all things. I'm a pastor, and listen, ministry can be an idol. Preaching for me can be an idol. Counseling, doing good things, sacrificing for the body, shepherding the flock, all those things can be idols. I can be using those things for approval of other people. I can be using those things so that people will think that I'm a good leader or they they will trust what I have to say and I get something out of that and so I'm doing it. I've cut God out of the equation. What are the good things in your life that you're idolizing that are too important, that you have taken to a place above God? They're on the throne of your affections instead of your Savior. An idol is anything you exalt to the place of God in your heart and life. Anything you exalt to the place of God in your heart and life. Now, I said earlier that when it comes to your desires and it comes to your trust, you can make idols. So let's look at an example of idolatrous desire. Look with me at Psalm 73. An example of idolatrous desire. Desiring something more than God. I love Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms because of the descent of sin that Asaph sinks down into and then comes repentantly out of it and ends up in the right place by the grace of God. But look with me at verse 2 of Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked at people who were rebelling against the law of God, those who hated God. Their lives were easy. They were prosperous and comfortable. 
and he was envious of them. And so he says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. But then he looks at himself, and verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he looks at the wicked, those who are forsaking God, and they have easy lives. He looks at himself, he is striving after living a moral life, a holy life under God's word. And yet, his life is hard. He's stricken every day. He's walking through trials and valleys. And so, in his mind, he's saying, I'm doing what I should do, and what do I get for it? Hardship. He's idolizing comfort. He's idolizing prosperity and ease. And it seems that he is actually seeking to keep his hands clean, like his his life moral and holy, so that he experience ease so that God will give it to him. God's not most important to him. His good, his joy, his authority, his trust, it's not in God. He's looking to ease and comfort as his idol in this time. But praise the Lord. God shows him his sin. In verse 17, he goes to the sanctuary of God and he remembers the end for the wicked. That they're walking toward destruction. He goes on to to say this in verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. He remembers that they're walking toward judgment. And as a result of that realization that God has given him, he repents. And he says in verse 21, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He repents and he comes back to God. And he says, verse 25, you know this verse, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's now at the place where God is on the seat, the throne of his affections. He's treasuring God now, but he wasn't before. He sought in the emptiness of comfort and pleasure and ease. So there's an example of idolatrous desire, but there's also an example of idolatrous trust. Look with me at 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27. We can desire something more than God. We can also trust something in the place of God, as if that something were God. And that's idolatrous as well. This is David. He is... Still on the run from Saul. And in verse 1 of this chapter, we read, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. He's going to turn to the Philistines. Instead of turning to the Lord and seeking the Lord for the help that he needs, he's fearful, and he says in his own heart, he's doing some self-talk here, I'm going to go to Philistia. Uh, that I'll be safe there because he won't chase after me. He won't seek me anymore if I go to our enemies. 
He ends up going there and um, he's basically uh, living this uh, deceitful life of lying as um, he and his men are going out on raids under the guise of doing something for the king of Philistia. It's this whole big, um, ugly mess of bloodshed and lies. He's doing it because he's trusting in himself. He's trusting really in Philistia, the Philistines, instead of believing that he can stay there in Israel and trust God to protect him. Because there's this history of God protecting him. If you go back through 1 Samuel, there's this long line of examples of how God had preserved him. And yet he's forgetting that. And he's going to trust his own mind. He's going to trust his enemies, essentially, this foreign land to keep him safe. He's not trusting God. He's trusting something else. Idolatrous trust. How do you know if something has become an idol? How do you know when that good something has crossed the line into something that you're worshiping in the place of God? Look with me at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. James asks a great question in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's that's an extremely practical question. Next time your your kids are fighting, ask them that. Say, listen, I'm going to sit down. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And you can tell them. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Right? Again, the heart's the problem. Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You are desiring something and you're not getting it, so you are fighting. You're wanting something so badly, but you can't have it. You can't get it. And it's leading to a sinful response. So what's the problem? Well, something has become an idol if you're willing to sin to get it, or sin if you can't have it. That will show you that that good thing has become too important. It's become ultimate in your heart instead of seen as something to worship God with, right? All of the gifts that God has given us should be enjoyed. I'm not saying don't enjoy the good gifts of God. I'm saying they should be enjoyed unto the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Paul says, what? Glorify God. If you're eating, you're drinking, do it unto the glory of God. As you're drinking Your orange juice, John Piper says, how do you do that to the glory of God? You thank him. Thank you for giving this to me. Thank you that you have supplied my needs. We take the gifts and they become for us opportunities to enjoy God and treasure him. They draw our attention back to him as the giver. So something has become an idol if you're willing to sin to get it or sin if you can't have it. Let's... Not wrong to desire something good. 
You need to, if you're counseling somebody, if you're counseling your own heart in this matter, you need to tell yourself that. It's not wrong to desire things that God has given as gifts, but when they become a demand, when a desire becomes a demand, then you've crossed the line to idolatry. I recall 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not insist on its own way. Right? That demanding spirit. We're not loving anymore when we are insisting on our own way. And when this is the condition of your heart, you're worshiping whatever it is that you believe you must have. Right? Hear these words. Demand. Must. When you must have it. When you are like metaphorically pounding the table, demanding that it must be yours in order for you to experience happiness and to be fulfilled, that thing, that experience, that person is an idol. So you need to ask yourself to determine what's going on in your heart and what it is specifically that you are idolizing. Ask yourself, what do I trust? What do I treasure? What do I fear? What do I trust? What do I treasure? What do I fear? Now, Ben's got a handout for you. He's going to hand out to, to give you an idea of some other questions to ask to determine what your idols may be. And I want you to spend some time going over this. You can take this as kind of homework. And look, there's a lot of other questions you can ask of your heart to determine what it is that you are putting on the throne of your motivational control center. You can look on that sheet and, and see those blanks. That comes from a, a book by Jerry Bridges that will be helpful to you. And you can use this yourself. You can use it with a counselee that you're working with to help them see what it is that is leading them to their sinful responses. See, because when we're sinning and we have the rebellion of sin present in our lives and it's ongoing, we need to ask, okay, what is it that I'm trusting in ultimately? What is it that I'm treasuring ultimately? Right? What is it that I'm fearing? Those will be an indication for us of where we need to take God's word and direct it. Some, some people, when you... When you say, okay, um, we need to figure out what your idol is so that we can make sure that we point you to the truth of God's word. And you ask the question, well, what are you treasuring? That might be strange to them. Like, I don't, that's hard. I, I don't know what you mean there. What am I treasuring? But if you flip over the coin and you ask, what do you fear? Well, that's the, that's the flip side of treasuring and desiring. What is it that you are fearing? That will tell you what you really, really, really want and are exalting above God. So take that home. Look at some of the, those questions, those fill in the blank there, and that will help you um, diagnose your idolatry. One of those on there that I appreciate is, where does your mind go whenever you have free time? Right? Whenever you have space to think about something that you don't have to think about, where does your mind drift that could be an indication of what it is that you're valuing in the place of God. You can see others like that. Well, that's kind of grim. <laughs> if we're honest, that's kind of grim. You're saying, all right, um, I am an idolater. 
I commit idolatry every day. And that's what we do. Every time you sin, there's an idol in your heart. There's something you're worshiping in the place of God. So, yes, you're an idolater when you do that. When I sin, I'm an idolater. That might seem very grim, but there's hope for idol worshipers. The Bible has glorious help and hope for idol worshipers. And so I want to show you that now, okay? What is our hope? A couple of texts. 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 1 Corinthians 6.9-11. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you may know, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You are new in Christ, a new heart with a new disposition, with new desires and new affections. You don't have to sin. You are no longer bound to sin. Go study Romans chapter 6 and it'll show you. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're actually a slave to righteousness and a slave to God. That's what Paul makes clear. You're bound to do the will of God now. You can say no to sin. You don't have to sin. He gave you a heart that is able to worship your king. And so there's obviously hope. But I want to show you this hopeful verse as well. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Like, okay, I thought you were supposed to give us hope. But verse 11 says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Beautiful. That's in the past. Those sins defined you in the past. But now you've been washed. You're justified. You're sanctified. You're no longer who you were. For anybody who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is true. And now you are defined by Jesus. You're defined by what He has done for you at the cross with His death and then His resurrection. Praise Him. There's hope. Anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. Idol worshipers can be made new. Idol worshipers can be transformed from the inside out. What other hope is there for idol worshipers? By God's grace, we can put off the lies of idolatry and live by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When you are trusting something else in the place of God, you're living by faith in whatever that idol is. But now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can live by faith in the Son of God. And I love how he says, 
the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul gives you another reason, or reminds you of the reason why you should be living by faith in him. Because he loved you. Because he gave himself for you. Don't you see that he's the one you should be living by faith in? Not the idols that you think will give you what you need or want. So, we can. We can put off the lies of idolatry and live by faith in Christ. Romans 13, 14 is another text that you can put on your list that goes along with this truth that says this, Paul writes, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Christ. Put on his promises. Put on the gospel realities that are in the New Testament that tell you about um, the redemption that you have, the reconciliation that you have. The union that you have with Christ and all the beautiful resources that you've been given by God in Christ. Study those things. Put those things on. And let those things encourage your heart and give you hope. And then, when it comes to the temptations of sin and idolatry, it says, do not gratify the flesh. Right? He says, he says this, don't make a provision for the flesh. Don't feed it. Instead, starve the flesh. Don't give in to it. Don't feed the dragon. Starve it. But the put on is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you can't just put off sin. You can't just put off the lies of idolatry. You've got to replace it, right? It's called the replacement principle. And Paul talks about it all the time. He says, you have got to put off the old you and put on the new. Live in this reality of your union with Jesus Christ because when you came to Jesus Christ by faith, the old you died and now you are new. You're risen to walk in newness of life. Live out that reality. Starve the flesh. Put on Christ. Now what else? What other hope do we have for idol worshipers? We need to believe that the Lord is the one that you need. If we're called to live our lives by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that He's the one that you need. Not your idol, Him. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. I love that. Alone, alone, only. There is no one else that can give you that security and that hope and that salvation. So He is the one that we must wait for. He is the one we must trust and hope in. There's also one that you may know too that's always an encouragement. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Those things will fail us. Our idols will fail us. If your idol hasn't failed you yet, it will. Just wait a little bit longer. But God will never let you down. Those who look to Him, their faces are radiant, the Psalms say. And they will never be ashamed. They will never find themselves looking to God and being disappointed because He does fulfill the longing of our hearts and gives us what we truly need. What else do we need to believe? What other hope do we have for idol worshipers? We need to believe this as well. 
Psalm 43, 4 and Psalm 63, 3 give us this reality that we need to believe the Lord is our superior pleasure. Every time that you choose sin, you're choosing to believe that an idol will give you more pleasure than God. You're believing the lie that you will have, if it's, if it's this person, this experience, right? If, if it's being treated with respect, that's a big one for, for marriage counseling. Counseling people in marriage and, and one person in the marriage says, if, if only I could get my spouse to respect me, then I will be fulfilled. Then I will truly be able to be happy if my spouse would respect me. And so respect becomes the idol instead of trusting that God is our superior pleasure. Whatever the alternative is, whatever the option for joy is, that is going to be inferior to the pleasure that we have, the pleasures forevermore that David talked about in Psalm 16. Psalm 43, 4 says this, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Psalm 63, verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Better than life itself is your steadfast love. You gotta, it's, it, it, sounds, it sounds so basic, doesn't it? But in the moment, it's not always easy to apply it. To, to recognize, right now, you think that that person is going to give you a superior pleasure by speaking to you kindly or through some kind of gratification. They're going to give you a superior pleasure. Stepping back and recognizing what's actually going on in your heart with Satan, with the world tempting you and saying, no, 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 no. God's word is true. He's never lied to me. He never will. And he says that the superior pleasure is actually himself. Not his gifts, but him. We also need to be given hope. <clears throat> be given hope in this reality. Proverbs fourteen twelve and Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 remind us that the Lord's will is right and best. The Lord's will is right and best. Proverbs 14.12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Seems right. It actually leads to death. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do you believe that? His will is right and best, not yours. Our hearts have gone astray to our own way. We need to... Turn back and remember each time that we are tempted to sin. Now, he knows what's best. Maybe it doesn't feel like it's best for me right now, but I can't trust my own heart because my heart wants to go this way. But the Bible tells me my way is destructive. His way is the way to life. So I need to choose him and not my selfish leanings. By the way, I'll, I'll give you this. I think this got taken out of... Um, my PowerPoint presentation, but if you look at Romans 8, 28 and 29, we need to believe that the Lord's plan for us is best. His plan for us is right as well. So when we look at Romans 8, 28, we remember that God causes all things to work together for good 
for those who are called according to His purpose, those who love God. But then we're reminded in verse 29 that the good He's talking about, causing all things to work together for good, the good is actually being conformed to the image of His Son. So you can trust His plan. You might think something else is good. You might think to yourself, well, no, no, uh, good means that um, my family will be in order. Good means that I will get my spouse to respect me. Good means I'll get that promotion. Good means that I'll finally be able to have financial security. But God says, no, my plan is this, and this is what I'm doing in your life. This is what I'm ultimately getting at, and that is that you would become like my son. Do you believe that, that that's right and best? These are the truths that you can preach to yourself and turn away from the lies of your idols. Say, okay, I think that this is going to be right and best, but God says, no, his way is right and best. Those Those other definitions of good that I have for myself, those are inferior. They're empty. God's is full of life. Also, Isaiah 61, or 6, verses 1 through 4, and Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, remind us that the Lord is worthy of all your worship. So you know in Isaiah chapter 6, that picture, that glorious, holy picture, where Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. He is worthy of your worship. No idol is. Your idols aren't worthy of honor and treasure and trust. But God is. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And the text goes on. He is worthy. We need to remember that faith acts Faith acts. We must live our lives in a way that shows that we believe these things about God. Because faith is not simply confessional. I need to get that through to, to you. Faith is not simply confessional. Like, yes, of course, I believe these things about Jesus. I believe that he is truly God and truly man. Right? I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that the word of God is sufficient and it's inerrant. I believe that God created me. I believe that he's all-knowing. These are all things that confessionally you can say, yes, I believe about God. But do you believe them functionally is the question. Do I believe them functionally? In my day-to-day life, when I'm, when I'm getting in the car in the morning and I don't want to go to school or I don't want to go to work, what do I believe about God? What do I believe about who he is and what he's done for me in Christ? Whenever I am tempted on my phone or you're tempted on your computer what do I believe about God in that moment what do I believe about Christ and what he's done for me at the cross whenever there is a temptation to blow up and yell at the person who is belittling you in that moment what do you believe about God do you really believe he's your superior pleasure that his will is right and best that his plan for you is right and best 
These are the things that we live by. We don't just say, yes, I've got this doctrinal statement. I'm a Christian. Here's what I believe. But it is a faith that is lived. We walk by faith, Paul says. And so just thinking about that for a moment, here's a practical formula for you. A practical formula for you to apply. Now give it to our our brother, John Piper, to make an acronym out of a word that doesn't exist. It sounds like a, like, a, like a Star Wars vehicle or something to me. You know, when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, okay. It's not even a word, but you remember it. You're going to remember it now. I'm going to remember it always, aptat. So here is a way to live out our faith, turning from idolatry and finding our life in God, exalting Him and always putting Him on the throne of our affections, of our trust and our treasure. Here we go. Number one, admit you can do nothing without God. In in, in doing this, you're simply acknowledging your neediness, aren't you? I need Him. I don't need myself. I can't. Left to myself, when it comes to living a holy life, I can't. I need God instead. Admit you can do nothing without God. Pray for help. Call out to Him. If you need some vocabulary for that, just go to the Psalms. I'll give you the vocabulary for prayer, for pleading with God. And God, I I want this right now. I feel like my idol is what will fulfill me. I know it's not right. In my mind, I know it's not right. But my, my, my heart is telling me different. And I know I can't trust me right now. But change my heart in this moment. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Pray. Cry out to Him. He, listen, do you believe that God wants you to turn from sin? Of course He does. Of course He wants you to turn from sin and choose Him and glorify Him and believe everything that He has revealed in Scripture. Sometimes I think that we don't believe that. Like, at least functionally in the moment, we don't believe that God really wants us to turn from sin and to choose Him. He's also all-powerful, and He's all-wise. So turn to Him, cry out to Him, pray for help. Trust a specific promise then. That's where all these verses come in. You've got a good start, right? You've got all these verses listed out. You can put these into an app on your phone. At our church, we use the Fighter Verses app. Right? You can you know, use the verses they already have in that app, or you can. there's a My Verses section. You can populate that with your own verses so you can pull that out, and whenever you're being tempted, you can choose to trust a specific promise. Not just this vague kind of, oh, yes, uh, um, God is good. Now, is that better than nothing? Yes, it's better than nothing. But why not go to a specific truth, a specific promise that relates to the thing that you are struggling with. How God is better. How God can be trusted. How His ultimate glory is superior to what it is you're desiring. You see? In that moment, trust a specific promise. That's where, that's where meditating on the Word of God and memorizing Scripture comes into play. The Spirit uses that as ammunition against idolatry. And then, listen, if we just had apt, that wouldn't be enough. Okay? Because you have to act now. Act. This is, this is big for me. 
Okay, let me just tell, give you a personal testimony. Um, I I felt like I had the APT down about ten years ago, and I was, I was struggling with anxiety. I was struggling with fear. And so I would acknowledge, yes, I need God. I would pray for his help. I would remember scripture. But then I wouldn't do anything. And what act means is you, you've got to actually live by faith, right? Act like you believe that promise in the moment. And so um, I would struggle with, with anxiety about certain things. And I got to the point where I, I knew that I needed to do something different and this concept helped me. So I would go in the other room. My kids were smaller then. It's about 10 years ago. And I would, I would pray and conf- confess that I needed the Lord. And I would, I would ask for his help. And then I would bring scripture to mind. And then I said, okay, what I want to keep doing right now in my flesh is just to keep spinning my wheels. Keep praying over and over and over and over again. Right? Just, I need you. I need you. Help me in this way. I need you. Remember scripture. But, but then I wouldn't get up. I would be crippled still in this cycle. So what did I need to do? I need to actually exhibit faith. So what I did was I told myself, you've got to do the next thing that God wants you to do. What is the next thing that God wants you to do that you know would be faithful? You could sit here in your anxiety, but anxiety we know is not faithful. I was worrying. I wasn't trusting God. I was kept, kept heaping these worries on my shoulders. So what did faith look like at that moment? It meant like, it looked like this. Getting up, going out of the other room, and going into the next room where my kids were and playing with them on the carpet. See, what is, how does faith, what does that look like? Because I needed to stop um, trusting myself in that prayer. I need to stop spinning my wheels in that prayer and just continuing to say in this uh, morbid introspection. I was using prayer to worry. I needed to leave the room and then go love my kids. Get my focus off of myself and say, I know God wants me to lead them and to love them and to be with them. Or go in the other room and wash the dishes because you know your wife hates washing the dishes. He told you. So why don't you go wash the dishes? And love her and, and do what God wants you to do. In that way, what you're doing, you're saying, God, I want to take control of this by sitting here and continuing to worry. But I'm going to go into the other room and trust you to work this out in my heart and life. I'm going to believe you, not me. So act, believe, and show that belief. And then finally, when you see God act, you see him come through that faith and exhibit grace and give you help and bear fruit, then you turn around and thank Him for His provision. Because it came from Him. Everything is from Him and through Him and to Him, right? So when I would go in the other room, what would happen all the time, every time this would happen, and I got my mind onto other people and loving God by loving other people, then that anxiety would dissipate. Because the Lord in His grace was working through that faith to give me peace and freedom from that onslaught of temptation. And then you turn around and say, God, that came from you, didn't come from me. Thank you. See how God-centered this is? How trusting this is? I hope that's helpful to you. i got one more thing just to hand out to you to, uh, for homework. I, I'm a couple of guys are going to hand out another sheet. This kind of shows you, it's a chart to show you the descent of idolatry and the way out, just in a helpful little chart that you can take and use for homework. So these guys are going to be passing that out. It looks just like this. So you don't have to draw it. 
I think last year when I did this, people were like frantically trying to draw this thing at the end of the, you know, at the end of the night. And I said, I'm just going to give it to them, you know? So there you go. That's helpful. You can see kind of where we were going. Uh, a desire turns into a demand and a need and expectation, then disappointment, and then there's your sinful response, right? And then you need to turn to Christ at that point and rest in Him, rely on Him, and submit to Him. And that's what repentance looks like. So I hope that's helpful. I don't even know what time it is. I probably went long. I apologize. Let's pray, and then I'll let you go. Father God, thank you for giving us this hour or more to glorify you, Lord. I pray that you would help these, these uh, dear saints to get the rest they need and come back ready to, to be filled up tomorrow and equipped so that they can serve you by serving other people with the truth of your word that is so sufficient. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.